So today's Bible reading is all of Matthew 16. You can find it on page 1527 of the Black Bibles or read along on the screen behind me. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this amongst themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You have in mind the concerns, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thank you, Susan. I wonder 
when you get your best ideas. When do your ideas come to you? When does the light bulb moment happen for you? Uh, I've heard many people say that their best ideas come to them while they're in the shower, perhaps something to do with warm water banging on the outside of your brain that just kind of helps to get it working, or maybe it's that kind of relaxing, <coughs> excuse me, relaxing feeling that you have in the shower that helps to get your mind working. When the light bulb moment happens, some people call that the eureka moment. The original eureka moment is said to have been attributed to Archimedes, that guy who also invented the screw. Apparently Archimedes, who was a Greek scholar, was trying to work out the volume of shapes and he was having trouble working out how to do this with irregular shaped objects. One day not stepping into the shower but rather stepping into the bath, he realised that the water displaced the volume of um, himself in the bath and he worked out how to solve his problem. It's called his Eureka moment. He jumped up, apparently Archimedes was so excited by this discovery that he ran around the town shouting about what he'd done, forgetting that he just jumped out of the bath and didn't have any clothes on. Matthew chapter 16 contains a eureka moment, a light bulb moment. Fortunately, everyone in Matthew chapter 16 is fully clothed and there are no baths or showers on view in Matthew chapter 16. But nonetheless, it's a really important point in Matthew's gospel. It's kind of like a turning point almost. Because here for the first time, we see Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, declaring who Jesus really is, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter's response in verse 16 is, I think, kind of like the high watermark of this chapter. It's kind of what everything else is hung on in this chapter. And that question that Jesus asks is, I think, the question that Matthew still wants us to be asking today as his readers you're here today perhaps it's the question that you've been thinking through as well who is Jesus if that's you thank you for being here you're very welcome I hope today you begin to form some answers to that question see Matthew wants us to consider the evidence of who Jesus is and then work it out for ourselves if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks you remember kind of where we're up to in the story as we work our way through Matthew, but just let me recap for those who haven't been around so that we're on the same page together. We've been looking at the kingdom of heaven and the king of that kingdom, Jesus. Over the last few weeks, we've seen that the kingdom of heaven is of great worth. It's like buried treasure. In other words, it's worth seeking. It's worth giving up all you have to grasp hold of it. We've seen in the parable of the net that the kingdom of heaven is a big stakes issue. It's a matter of life and death. Actually, it's more than that because it stretches on into eternity. Eternity is at stake in these chapters. We saw Jesus issue a warning. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. We've seen in these chapters the great power and the compassion of the king of the kingdom Jesus we've seen that he's a miracle worker that he feeds thousands upon thousands with just a few pieces of bread and some fish in a way that never just seems to run out and last week we looked at 
that attribute of people who are in the kingdom. It's all about the heart. We saw that the king of the kingdom is able to see into our hearts. He knows what, we like, what we're like. Now that's scary, isn't it? Because I think all of us know that our hearts at one level are, are crook, broken, filthy. Last week we saw that, that those with dirty hearts, that's all of us, have nowhere to go except back to the king of the kingdom, to Jesus. Back to the Lord. He's the one of forgiveness. He's the one who can clean dirty hearts. We saw that in the faith of the Canaanite woman. Remember that that person who was quintessentially opposed to God's people, the one who, who really should never have known God. And she came to Jesus and she bested him in a battle of the sayings. She came, though, presuming only on his grace. Lord, help me, was what she said. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to get an insight into what the kingdom of heaven is like and what the king of that kingdom is like. If you've been with us over the course of the year, you might remember earlier in the year when we looked at chapters 8 to 12 of Matthew's gospel, we saw Matthew ask a question of Jesus. What kind of a man is this? Was the question that was asked earlier. It was the question that the disciples actually asked after seeing Jesus calm a raging storm with just a word that was right back in chapter 8. That question, who is this man, kind of bounced around those chapters. Remember, he was a man who healed the sick, cleansed those with leprosy, even raised the dead. In In Jesus, the blind saw and the deaf heard, and the lame walked. Matthew asked us, what kind of a man is this? It was the question that the disciples asked each other. And then today we get to chapter 16, and Jesus himself asks a very similar question. Who do you say I am? It's a question that I'd love each of us to have an answer to. Who do you say I am? The McCrindle report on faith in Australia suggests that 53% of Australians, more than half, think Jesus was an extremely important person in culture and history. Random people who were surveyed said things like this about Jesus. He's an all-round awesome guy in his religious beliefs. He's all round, selfless, caring, sacrificing, all good to all people. That was a Gen Xer saying that. Then a Gen Y, there is nothing negative about him. He was a very moral person. There are so many good traits there, if he does exist. Question for you today is, who do you say Jesus is? That, I think, is the big question in our chapter today. But it's not the question that the chapter starts with. Back in the start of chapter 16, the focus is on the religious leaders of the day. Come with me back to the start of the chapter 2, verse 1 of chapter 16, that you'll find on page 1,527 of your Bibles. And as you're turning there, I'd encourage you to, to turn there. As you're doing so, let me just remind you, if you want to ask any questions today, you can do so by texting in to me the numbers on the leaflet. And I'd love to answer those questions a little later on. So back to Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. 
You'll see there that some Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to send a sign from heaven. If you are here with us last week, you might remember that in chapter 15, that chapter started with Pharisees coming from Jerusalem, making that long walk all the way up from Jerusalem to Gennesaret to challenge Jesus. And here in chapter 16, it's Pharisees again, and this time Sadducees with him, with them, challenging Jesus. Now, it might escape us today, but Pharisees and Sadducees doing things together, as I understand it, is not normal practice. These two religious sects were not exactly the best of friends. It's a bit like the Crows cheer squad putting down their glasses of Chardonnay and the power supporters taking off their beanies and Ugg boots to collectively (laughs) protest. It'll never happen, will it? Unless the situation is dire. What would cause that to happen? Maybe all Friday night games of football only ever played in Victoria. Would that bring the crows and the power together? Well, a similar thing is happening here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are getting together and they're challenging Jesus and they ask for a sign. They ask for a sign. Let's just pause for a second or two here and and flick back in your Bibles just over the last few pages and just see what has been going on just in the last few pages. Feeding the 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. Walking on water. Okay, maybe the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't see that, but surely they had heard of Jesus feeding 5,000 men and probably 5,000 women and probably 5,000 kids as well. Maybe they'd heard of the death of John the Baptist or the casting out of demons or the healing of the blind and the sick. I mean, the way that Matthew tells it as we read through his account is that Jesus went through all the towns And he healed everyone in those towns who were sick. And yet the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus and they ask for another sign. Over and over again, Jesus has been demonstrating who he is. Like as you read through Matthew's gospel, apart from telling the odd parable here and there, it seems like Jesus has been doing nothing else but working signs. Pointing to who he is. And yet the religious leaders of the day demand another sign. Jesus doesn't say no, does he? But he's not really happy with them either. Let me read to you from verse 2 of chapter 16. He replied, When evening comes, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Basically, Jesus is saying, isn't he, you're able to read the signs of the weather, but when it comes to the really important things, like the coming of the kingdom of heaven, you're blind. There have been signs all around you. You who are supposed to know the scriptures and supposed to teach it to others, just like in chapter 15, you are blind guides. And as we read through these chapters, I think most of us can see how ridiculous this is for the Pharisees and Sadducees to ask for yet another sign. Jesus has been doing nothing else but work these signs. 
So here's my challenge for us today. Are we any different? Are we any different to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Perhaps you've thought a similar thing or heard others say, I'd believe God if he just gave me a sign. I believe in his existence. I believe in him. Matthew's showing us that Jesus, God, has broken in. He has worked sign upon sign. The reality is, though, that some of us don't see this. Some see and some don't. I wonder if you've ever seen one of those magic eye pictures. Naveen, if you can throw one up on the screen behind me, you'll know what they look like. A whole lot of random colour splotches on a page. And if you happen to stare at it in just the right way, a 3D image jumps out at you. This one happens to be a teapot. Gus managed to wake it work before. None of you will be able to see it on the screen behind me. I don't think you can make it work looking on a projector screen. So, um, so that we don't get distracted, Naveen, could you just get rid of that? Because <laughs> um, I'm sure we're all going to be trying to see the teapot jump out of us. Some see, though, and some don't, don't they? I think you get the picture. But I wonder what you think. Do you think it would have been reasonable for Jesus to just say no to the Pharisees and the Sadducees at this point? To say, no, you've, there's been enough science. No more. Well, Jesus still says there's the sign of Jonah. You might wonder what that is. Well, Matthew elaborated on a little bit earlier. Um, flick back with me in your Bibles to chapter 12, um, verse 38. You'll find that on page 1519. A very similar thing happens uh, back in chapter 12. I'm just going to read it to you. You'll pick up on what this sign is. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation ask for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. I hope you see here what the sign of Jonah is about. Three days Jonah was in the belly of a fish, three days and three nights. That was Jonah's experience. The Son of Man, three days in the heart of the earth. But not only that, Jonah preached to a nation that did not know God and that nation collectively repented. Collectively, they turned back to God. The sign of Jonah is his preaching and condemnation on those in Nineveh, and they repented. The religious leaders in Jesus' time, those who were equipped with all the knowledge of the Old Testament, just didn't seem to be able to see Jesus for who he was. Despite all that he's done over the last few chapters, they can't see Jesus for who he is. There's no repentance, no turning back. And probably by this stage you think Jesus must be getting pretty exasperated. Why can't they see the signs? And so in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks, is my message getting through? Let me read to you from verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? 
They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still other, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. If you feel the waste, but I reckon this is a pretty high stakes moment for Jesus and his disciples. He puts it out on the line and he asks a dangerous question. Who am I? What if Peter had said, well, you're an all-round awesome guy, selfless, caring, good to all people, a top bloke. What would Jesus have done then? Would he have had to go to the next village and heal the sick there or calm the next storm, hoping that at some point the message would get through to the disciples about who he really is? But they do get it, don't they? Well, at least Peter gets it, and, and I kind of get the feeling that perhaps the others uh, also got that with Peter. Surely they'd been talking together about who this man is ever since that time they were in the boat, and they asked that question, what kind of a man is this? And look at Peter's answer. He says, you are the Messiah. Peter's saying here, you are the promised deliverer, the saviour, the one to set the people free, the one who was promised the son of the living God. It's not quite the creedal statement that we said together before, is it? But it is guttural and deep and profound. Peter understands, he knows, this is the saviour. But not only his saviour, this is the one who came to save his people from their sins. That's what the signs have been pointing to all along, the healings and the miracles and the wise teaching Here is God with us, the saviour of all people. Are you with Peter this morning? Do you think he's called it correctly? The evidence is in front of you. Matthew's been recording and documenting and crafting this gospel for you to arrive at your own conclusions. (coughs) Who is this man? Has Peter got it right? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the son of the living God? I wonder what you think this morning. Maybe you're sitting on the fence still. If that's you, um, I'd love you just to keep digging into Matthew's gospel. Go back and read through the previous chapters. Can I encourage you to keep looking at the evidence? Read it slowly and think about what Matthew is saying. Why did he go to the effort to record these things for us? I want to invite you to keep working and looking at the evidence. Keep wrestling with the text. I know it's not an easy thing to do, but over the last few weeks, we've seen Matthew tell us that the kingdom is worth giving up everything you have in order to pursue it. We've seen Matthew show us that this is a life or death question. In fact, it's an eternity question. So let me encourage you, if you're not sure today, Please don't park things, but keep exploring what Matthew is saying to us. In September, we're going to be running a course as a church, helping people explore the details of who Jesus is. If you want to know more about that, I'd love to talk with you after. I'd love to invite you to come along to join us in that course. Let's, just, let's move on, though. I want you to see that Jesus has responded, uh, sorry, Peter has responded to Jesus in a really positive way here, hasn't he? He, uh, I think, has given the answer that Jesus wanted to hear. 
What Jesus says next is a little confusing. Much has been written about these verses. I'm going to read to you from verse 17 and we'll see if we can work through what they mean. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's a couple of things to note about this passage. There is a play on words here in the original language that we miss in English. I like the way that Craig Keener puts it. He says something like this. Peter is the nickname here that Jesus gives to Simon, son of Jonah. And for us today, it would make more sense if the nickname was Rocky rather than Peter. Because Peter translates to rock in the original language. Greek word for rock is the same as Peter, essentially, or very similar. So in English, it would kind of work better if Jesus said something like this, Simon, I give you the nickname Rocky, and on this rock I will build my church. Some of you may recognize the role that this passage plays in the structure and hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Perhaps the question that we need to ask as we work through this, though, is does Jesus intend to build his church on Peter or on Peter's confession? Does Jesus intend to build his church on Peter or on Peter's confession? I wonder what you think the answer to that question is. It seems clear to me in this passage that Jesus is pleased with Peter's response and it seems also that Peter is set aside here from the rest of the disciples for a significant role in the formation of the church. But there are others, other disciples and others who play a critical role in the formation of the church. You might like to say there are other rocks upon which the church is also built. So why then is Peter singled out? Well, in many ways I'm not sure. I don't think many of the commentators are either. The best explanation though is I think that perhaps it's to show us the humanity of the early church. Because Peter's a human, isn't he? And we know that really well, I think. He's singled out, perhaps because we'll see that he makes a number of errors of judgment and it shows us the fallibility of people in the church. It shows us the humanness of the church, if nothing else. And to add weight to that idea, Peter gets it badly wrong in just the very next paragraph, doesn't he? In fact, no sooner has Peter been congratulated by Jesus in in the most heartwarming way he possibly could, he's been chastised severely, isn't he? Let me read on from where we got up to. I think it's verse 21. It says this, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You spot the turning point in the story? From this point on, Jesus' identity, at least to his disciples, is known. And Jesus begins to prepare them for what lies ahead for his death. Be a cruel death. 
at the hands of those for the last few chapters who've been pursuing him. A death at the hands of the elite and the esteemed. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what lies ahead. And it horrifies Peter. It's like Peter saying, over my own dead body, I won't let that happen. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter knew that much, but he doesn't know the whole story yet, does he? But Jesus' death and his resurrection was God's plan all along. This is how things are made right. This is how God provides justice. This is how wickedness and sin is atoned for. This is how forgiveness is meted out. And ultimately, this is how our own death is defeated, as demonstrated in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I don't think really blame Peter at this point. He only knows so much. But it was always God's intention that Jesus would be our substitute. That was Jesus' role. That's why he came, to die in our place. This is how things are going to be made right. This is the validation that the kingdom of heaven reigns supreme. In chapter 16, we've seen the penny drop, at least for Peter, We've seen him begin to realise who Jesus really is. But up to this point in the story, Peter, I don't think, really recognises what that means, either for Jesus or for himself. Today we've got the benefit of the rest of the New Testament and we know how the story ends. We know that Jesus will indeed die, but he will raise, rise victorious. We know that Peter will go on to preach to the crowds in Acts And that thousands in the new church will repent and believe because of his teaching. We know that from Peter's sermons, the infant church will indeed begin to grow. Now the church, of course, does not end with Peter. The church is still growing today in God's kindness. It's still growing today on account of people recognising Jesus for who he really is. And having their own confession that says Jesus is the Messiah the Son of the living God. I want to pray for us that that too would be something that we come to know and realise and are known for as a church. Father God, we give you great thanks for this passage that helps us to see with absolute clarity who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We give thanks to you that in your grace you sent him. We give you thanks that in your grace he died as our substitute. That you've made us right because of that. Father, we pray that you would help us to think through who Jesus is for ourselves. By your spirit, we pray that you would soften our hearts and help us to stand with a clear profession that your Son is the Messiah. Amen. Thanks, Susan. Um, As I mentioned before, we have an SMS question line, and I have a great question today. It says, why does Jesus say no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, when, as you've mentioned, many signs were given? I think the question is asking us, why the sign of Jonah, Um, when there's so many other signs? Why Jonah? I think what I want to suggest is that primarily the sign of Jonah is a sign of condemnation on the Pharisees and the Sadducees who should have known better. The story of Jonah is a wonderful 
wonderful story. If you haven't read it in a while, I'd encourage you to have a look at it. Um, Back in chapter 3 of Jonah, um, which if you want to turn to is on page 1,443 of of your Bibles, uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and in verse 2, God says to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah now finally obeys the word of the Lord, and he goes to Nineveh, which is a very large city, the Bible tells us. It would take three days to walk through, a bit like Adelaide probably, or maybe Sydney or Melbourne. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. And this is what Jonah said when he gets there. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that's all he says as well. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God. That's all he said. And the Bible tells us the Ninevites believed God and they repented and they put on sackcloth and... um, God had mercy on them. So can you see the comparison? Nineveh is not a a Jewish city, not the people of God. And then we have the Sadducees and the Pharisees, those who really should have been equipped to know exactly what the signs of God were like. They missed Jesus. They couldn't understand who he was. Compare that with the Ninevites. All Jonah says is 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And they repent. So I think it's a comparison And essentially, it's a sign of condemnation. Look at how Nineveh behaved. And you, you Pharisees and you Sadducees, with all the privilege, all the knowledge that you have, you haven't been able to respond to Jesus in the right way. I hope that makes sense. If you want to ask me any more about that or any other questions, I'd love to talk with you over lunch today. So please come and have a chat with me about those questions. Thanks, Susan.